when you throw that switch and your game goes live and you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, we have to patch in a month. We have no idea how to do that. We just spent the last three months going crazy trying to get the game out the door. Now we're in sustainment and we have to suddenly build it all from scratch. Yeah. Welcome to Building Better Games. We've recently gotten a ton of questions and comments from people in games talking about live service and what it means for game dev. This is a huge topic, so we're gonna focus on how you should frame and approach live service in games. In the future, we may dive into more specifics with some other guests, but we're gonna keep it high level for this one. Here's some questions we want to answer. When should I worry about my game as a live service? What is the live service spectrum and how can it help you think about preparing your studio for live service? What are the key things that most leaders forget when it comes to running a live service as a game? We've spent a lot of time working in a game as a service environment and figuring out what will and won't work for one of the biggest live service games in the world, namely League of Legends. Here's some tips and steps you can take as a leader for your studio. People ask us about this all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it, I think, is our association with Riot. People want to know, how do you do this? How do you run production in a system where you have regular content patches going out or you have to take player feedback and incorporate that into your creative development process? Like Ben and I started thinking about this and we were it just like broke into like a million pieces. And we were just like, we might need to do a series on this because it's such a complex topic. We could do a podcast on each, probably with an expert guest in that category. So keep your eyes out for that. Uh, It may not come immediately, but it might be something we do. The other reason I wanted to bring this up to you all right now is because when we make these podcasts, we try to avoid going too abstract. We really want to make the takeaways from these practical so that you can run and, and immediately implement this as a leader. But bear with us for this one because it, we are going to have to stay reasonably high level because this is such a broad topic. I don't know about you, Ben. I think I'm still realizing how much I've taken for granted with my own experience in this category oh, yeah. as well. Like I think as I've thought about my experiences at Riot and all the work that we did, I'm realizing like, oh, that's a live service thing. Oh, that's a live service thing. It was so built into the system that I don't think I really thought about it in those terms until I started having other experiences and talking to other studios and realizing that not everyone does all that. There may be things that you hear from Ben and I that we take for granted. Um, we've spent a lot of time thinking about this, but that may be a trap. So I'll just try to trying to be humble up front about that. Yeah, well, no, we definitely have a bias having spent the vast bulk of our time working on and in a live service environment and in a company that very deliberately built these systems in across every team and structure and every like this was this was just baked into the cake and i think for a lot of people they're asking this question because it's not baked into the cake they're encountering the question of wait a minute how will we handle live service when should i think about that what do i do with it and there aren't any really great sort of institutional answers to that question The first place I want to go into, and we alluded to this in the intro, is the idea of the live service spectrum, because this is a starting point to understand how you should be relating to a live service. And, you know, it's funny, almost all games nowadays operate 
off of some sort of digital platform. Like, a, you know, vast majority of, on PC in the West probably run on Steam. Obviously, you've got some other solutions like Battle.net or Epic Store, stuff like that, too. But like broadly, you're going there. And so there's there's some basic expectation that even if you release a single player game, you're still sitting on top of a live service. People are going to be downloading it from the Internet. Like it's not as though you can just send someone a disc. They're going to install it. They're never going to talk to you. They're never going to be interested in that. Like you're going to get reviews. People are going to respond. If there's bugs, you're going to hear about it. Are you going to respond or not? That's a bunch of different, there's a ton of questions that sit here. We're talking about this spectrum in terms of like, to oversimplify it, super live service, something like a Fortnite or League of Legends where the game basically doesn't. Yeah, an MMO. Yeah, an MMO where the game basically doesn't exist outside of the context of the online aspect. Yep. And then on the other extreme, which is funny because it doesn't really exist anymore that much, which is like, you know, going and buying a cartridge for your Nintendo 64 back in yep. the day. That yep. would be like the ultimate other side of the spectrum. And so we're, we're sort of putting forward this spectrum for you to think about. And actually, it might be an interesting exercise to, for you to do what we did, where we started actually just plotting different games on that spectrum and, mm-hmm. and where they were. Think about where you're at, because if you can find a handful of sort of like kindred spirit games that are in your category, you can look at the things that they've done and potentially even inquire after how they run their studios and get some insight into how you might be able to solve. I would say that overall, the spectrum is moving more and more towards live every single day to the point where it is actually like, as I think about like, okay, well, what are the games that are just non-live service? I feel like a lot of the AAA sort of box products games still have like some online component. Oh, absolutely. There's like an integrated store. Yeah. There's there's almost always something. Like you said, we don't have that cartridge existence. And I think acknowledging that means that if we talk about the spectrum and we're going to talk through how to think about live service, if you go, I don't think I need one, I would question that. And I would talk to some other people and see that you you might be incorrect. That might be a bad assumption. Um, you may not need much of one, but you probably need something. I'm thinking about variables I consider when I think about the live service spectrum. And there's some obvious ones that come to mind. So I'm going to I'm going to list off a few and I'm curious what pops up for you. So one is on this live service spectrum, you have to think more about live service and probably invest more in live service if there is there are persistent elements to your game. There's something where like something's always running on a server somewhere to make sure things happen, to make sure the game works properly or continues. Again, these might be things like an MMO where the game world is, is constantly changing and adapting, or it might be something like you've got a store that's being updated on a regular basis. The more persistent that is, the more that's necessary there, the faster your response needs to be from like a latency perspective or to any issues that occur, the more you're thinking about like, hey, I probably need to have your live servants. The less persistent, the less you need that. One thing that's interesting on the persistence point too is like there are different kinds of persistence. As you know, when I think about my game design education, such as it is, I think about my brain think when I hear the word persistence, I think about again, like virtual worlds and things like that. So there's that gameplay kind of persistence, but there's there's other kinds of persistence too. Like if you have, if players are in any sort of like an, a social environment where there's like a chat, mm-hmm. for example, or a friends list, that is a form of persistence as well. Like a great example is for those of you who have played League of Legends, like inside the, the league client 
that the out of game experience when you're in the client, you can mess with your profile and your runes and your masteries and all this stuff. And you can chat with your friends. Interestingly enough, where a lot of people end up spending the majority of the time that they're in the league experiences in that, that's still a form of persistence. Another variable, multiplayer versus single player. If your game is multiplayer and people are connecting an online multiplayer specifically, not like co-op sort of couch co-op or right there on, on the same keyboard or something. If you're multiplayer online, the more that's true, the more you're going to have to be thinking about this. Your game is a live service. The less that's true, the less you're probably going to have to think about it as a live service. There were some other things that I was thinking about. One was, do you consider the game an ongoing, like an evergreen product, a product that's going to need improvement or a product that you don't expect to change? depending on where you are, like that's sort of your spectrum. If it's an evergreen game where you're constantly updating design, you're constantly adjusting balance, you're adding new content, characters, whatever, into the game, you're going to have more of a live service need. If you're just a game that's going to like occasionally throw out a patch or fix some bugs, like you're going to be far lower on that spectrum. And you might be in the place where, again, you ship it on Steam and you never touch it again. Yeah, and I think also on that note, I think Cadence of update is something that yep. might end up being more relevant than is this an evergreen product or not? Absolutely. Because like, well, it's not that it's more relevant. It's just, it's, just, it's a different variable. I think the idea of is this an evergreen product or not can, it's like, okay, well then you have to break down. What does that mean? Like is the Witcher 3 an evergreen product because they released like whatever, two or three DLCs over multiple years? Is there a certain like pace of new stuff that needs to come out or a certain pace of change for it to be considered evergreen? So I think that that's a factor as well, because again, one of the trends we're seeing is that there, it's very rare for a game to not have DLCs or big patch updates. That's almost uncommon at this point. The only other variable I would hit too is do you, from a vision perspective, want the product to be something that is responsive to the changing world? Or is it a static thing? And this is subtly different. This might be derived from some of the other ones. The more you want it to be responsive to how players are relating to the product and what they're saying, the more like you have a relationship with the players around the product, the more likely you're going to have some sort of live service. By the way, that might not even be about changing the game in some way. It may just be that you have more people who, from your company, who interact with players and talk to them about what they're experiencing and deal with the challenges and the bugs and the suggestions and all these things that they might be pushing forward. How big your game gets, how global your game is, how many different publishers or different regions you're operating in, all those sorts of, like, if you have a, a multiplayer game, but there's only 50 people that ever play at the same time, live service isn't as big a deal. If you have 3 million or 10 million people monthly that play your game, live service suddenly becomes a bigger deal and you need to think about those systems. The spectrum we've talked about so far, persistence, responsiveness, cadence, desired relationship with the players, online multiplayer versus single player, number of players and number of regions, basically scale of the product. And then is the product more evergreen or is it more of like glacial sort of singular vision once it's out, it's done. Here's the thing that makes this really hard. When you're developing a game, you don't know how big it's going to get. You may not know how players are going to respond to it. I can see a world where you're epic and you're creating this game called Fortnite, which is a cooperative anti-zombie game where you build a little base and the zombies try to break into it. And 
Suddenly PUBG happens, you realize you could turn your environment into a battle royale. Somebody does that and you ship it. And maybe you think it's going to do okay. Maybe someone in there predicted it's going to blow up and become one of the biggest, if not the biggest game in the world, right? Regardless, since you don't know up front, you're going to be taking a guess at this. And this is where when we talk about this spectrum, know that this spectrum, you should be updating it as you go and especially around when you ship. Because if you ship a game and nobody plays it and you would, you've already massively overinvested in live service and support because you assumed you were going to have 50 million monthly active users because you were just that confident and you end up getting none, you have just spent a lot of money you didn't need to spend. And the opposite is also true. If you were like, well, I don't think this is going to be that big and I don't think it's going to be much of a live service. And then you release a product and it had some sort of tack on multiplayer and that multiplayer explodes in popularity, you may suddenly need to be spinning up a live service. And there's nothing wrong with either, well, sorry, the first scenario, I think there might be something wrong with it. But the second scenario, there's nothing wrong with that, realizing that, oh my gosh, this game is far more successful than we thought. We're playing catch up. Well, and another thing too is the scenario where senior leadership or your publisher or whoever gets involved and says, hey, I understand that we sort of originally pitched this as a single player game, but it really needs some kind of an online component. There are serious consequences to that decision that go beyond just developing the features. Yes. And I think this is the kind of stuff that really gets people into a bind. Often the consequences involve building infrastructure into the way that you do everything. How do your teams think about releasing? How do they make their features compatible with what happens online? Mm -hmm. Like, how does the experience of your primary product flow gracefully into the online mechanism? Because we've all seen examples from a user interface perspective where that transition, you can just tell that that was done by two completely different groups of people yeah. that were not talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Again, these decisions all have consequences and affect the, the player experience too. Yeah. And I think that's where thinking about this wherever you are in development, you don't have to hire anybody right now. Maybe if you're ideating a game with a few co-founders or you're an indie game dev or something, but be aware of where do you think you, you're going to be on this? If you're making a multiplayer game where you want to patch it every week to make sure it stays balanced and fair for everybody that's playing it, great. That's a bunch of work. That's a bunch of people. That's a bunch of resources, money spent in that direction. And if you wait to the last minute to do that. It's going to be rushed. It's going to be janky. So Ben is talking about this idea of like, start having that conversation early, build it into the system. And by the way, like take that spectrum, make it for yourself, mm -hmm. get that as a conversation going with other leaders in your studio and basically be like, Hey, let's just like plot a bunch of games, like put a thing up on the wall or make a, a Miro board or whatever, and plot a bunch of different games on various points in the spectrum. And then see where your dot for your game ends up based on what you know today. And to Ben's point, understand that you're going to update that thesis as you learn and grow and you develop your understanding of what the game is, you might move your dot. But like, if you have a cluster of other games that are around you, you can start to like get consensus and get alignment around like, what kind of a company should we build? Yes. Like, how should we operate given that we want this much of a live service game or this much of a not live service game or whatever. Yes. So I want to move into the next topic based on that. Once you've picked that and you go, okay, we want to be a game that once it's live, we think we're going to have some decent scale. Again, a lot of this is going to be guesswork early on. That's okay. 
It's going to change as you get closer to live, as you get feedback from players, all these different things. You're going to discover what's working and what's not. You're going to have to update your model a little bit. One mistake I see studios make a lot related to this. They want their game to be a live service one where there's a rapid response. Maybe every month they patch or every two weeks they patch, something like that. But they don't build out those systems inside of development during the pre-production and production phases of development. I get an ideation. There's probably a lot of like janky prototypes being thrown around. But as you move into pre-production and you have your strong prototype and you're working on that and you're refining that, you're building out systems for that, you're making sure everything fits together, you're playtesting that, hopefully, often. As you're playtesting it, you should also be building the system that allows you to patch internally, update your playtestable build as you go. This is going to set you up for a world when you get through production, through post-production, you launch your game. Now, everybody's already got a system going where they understand how this stuff works. And instead, a lot of people treat development like it's this totally different thing. The game's not live yet, so who cares? And by the way, this often leads to weeks going by with an un no play testable build that's anywhere up to date, features that can't get integrated because things are a mess. You haven't built any of the systems. Now, part of that is just going to lead to you learning faster, which is great during development. But another part of that is preparing you for a world where your game goes live and now everybody's already in sync with like, yep, we know everything has to be tested. Building into your culture the systems and the expectations that this game is going to be a live service will be important even if you're not a live service today. Otherwise, when you throw that switch and your game goes live and you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, we have to patch in a month. We have no idea how to do that. We just spent the last three months going crazy trying to get the game out the door in a live, in a good live state, trying to get everything ready in like a post-production environment before launch. Now we're in sustainment and we have to suddenly build it all from scratch. Yeah. Um, that's not a place you want to be in. You want to be prepared yeah. for the live service reality. And again, like we understand the delicate juggling act that we're sort of alluding to here. And that if you're in production and you're building a gigantic game and you have a limited budget and you have like hard timelines, it's a luxury for us to sit here and tell you, you need to like think about all this stuff in addition to everything else you're already thinking of. What we're trying to say though, is that if you try to shoehorn all of this in at the last minute, not only will you forget a bunch of things, but you will not have the systems and culture you need to actually maintain this effectively. What does this really mean? So I want to actually call on some specific examples from our experience on League yeah, yeah. to help people understand like what this means. A couple examples that come to me off the top of my head when I think about live service stewardship is one is a cultural thing. Every single developer at Riot, I think, was instilled very early on with this idea of your responsibility does not end once you commit this change to the build. Like you need to understand what happens to players when this hits live. You need to care about that. You need to watch that. You need to build facilities so that you can react to that. Like a practical example is like, this is a weird thing, but it's like, okay, what happens if your feature breaks and you have to turn it off on live? Like, what does that mean? Is that a graceful thing? Does that like literally shut down an entire page on the player's profile that they can no longer use and the whole system is sort of like hobbling along. You couldn't shoehorn this in at the end. This isn't like a simple on-off 
switch. No. I mean, it might be if you're lucky, but more than likely it's going to be something you have to like build into the product itself. And that's kind of this idea of stewardship. It's like this idea that when teams set out to build things from day one, they're considering the consequences that this thing will have on the live service. They're thinking about like, okay, if we're building a new part of the experience, how does that fit into the existing experience? Yeah. Like, one of the things we see companies do a lot is they tend to want to naturally separate these things into two buckets. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, you folks are working on the game and the game is just a thing. It's a box that's over here. And then you other folks are like building the service. And again, the problem is, is like when you separate concerns like that, naturally people adopt responsibility and adopt an orientation toward the product that represents the box that they're in. Yep. And so if you have all your feature developers not thinking about the live service and all your live service people probably feeling rather crapped on by the developers yep. or feeling like no one understands the players other than them or understands the, the priority of the live service other than them, like these are the kinds of consequences that can happen. Again, when you build live service into your product, you need to think about Think about it in terms of building it into your product. It's not just, okay, let's add a couple live service features onto this. So there's two things that you, you talked about there that I think are great call-outs of a company that's thinking about live service is going to do and a company that's not thinking about live service is going to forget. One, feature and content toggles. However hard that is, building out your content features, code bases, whatever, in such a way that if you need to, you can toggle some off and others on. Another one that's very related to that, do you have a rapid way to roll back the live environment? If something does go out and you don't have toggles available to turn it off because of the way that the system is designed, can you roll back? I get it. You're going to have to yeah. make a new patch. It's going to be a nasty hot fix. I've lived through that particular hell. It's not fun, but it's something that may happen. If again, if you just happen to not have those features or it was such an integral feature, do you have the ability to do that? Or is that going to mean no one can play your live game for some number of days? So, so feature toggles, the ability to roll back a release. Another one is who handles problems that emerge. And this relates to that cultural thing that Aaron's talking about and that separation that we so often see where there's a team that builds the feature and they're going to ship the feature to some sort of test or internal like main branch or environment. And then they're going to move on to the next feature. And some number of weeks or months or even years later, that thing is going to go live. And when a bug pops up, some other team that's responsible for live bugs is going to be forced to try to handle it. This is a bad system. The reason it's a bad system is because the people that create the bugs aren't responsible for resolving them, which means that they don't feel the pain and are, aren't forced to s contend with and solve the pain of the creation of bugs in their environment. I encourage companies to avoid the creation of teams built around bug fixing. I'm not saying you don't have an on-call rotation of engineers. I'm not saying don't have people who are experts at sort of triaging and deal like you're going to have people if you have a big live operation you're going to have some sort of network operation center or knock so again there's going to be stuff that falls through the cracks that's okay this isn't perfect but if you want a culture around live service feature toggles content toggles ability to roll back and holding responsibility for resolution of issues with the teams that own the features and content and some people are going to say but wait that's going to slow them down yep 
and I say yes. And by the way, it's slowing you down a lot worse if you hand it to some other team. Oh, yeah. Who now you have to hire and maintain and they yes. no one wants to work on that. Team. Yeah, you can choose to have your feature team slow down a little bit. Not forever, but a little bit yes. for now. Or you can choose to have your entire organization grind to a halt. Eventually. When your live service falls over and nobody yes. feels responsible for it. When we're talking about culture, when we're talking about build the systems in, build the stewardship in, keep this in mind for new employees that join your company. If they came from an environment that's more single product, not as live servicey focused, you may want to have some part of your onboarding that helps them realize that this is, we're thinking about this as a live service game, whether you're live, whether you're in development, and somehow expose them to some of those systems, help them understand that this is how we work here and this is important and then reinforce that over time. Otherwise, you're gonna hire a bunch of people that don't think about game development as much as a live service and they're going to contort the culture. They're gonna start taking you in a different direction. They're gonna not worry so much about those on-off switches. They're gonna not worry so much about making sure that we could roll back or they're gonna make some decisions that could really blow up in your face down the road. So think about this when you're think bringing in new people as well. Okay, so let's move into to relationship with player. Yeah, we're talking about here about this idea of sitting down again. We just talked about this idea of sitting down and going like, okay, from a functional perspective, like where is our game from a, on the live service spectrum? There's another aspect to this, like another dimension to look at this problem from, which is what kind of a relationship do you want to have with your players? You know, the, I think that this is one of those questions that I feel like a lot of game studios don't ask. I think that there's a question, which is, how do you be deliberate about what kind of relationship you have with players? And then understanding that whatever choice you make there is going to have an impact on your systems and how you engage with the live service. So like a practical example of this would be like, well, you're like, well, we really want the players to feel like we're close to them. So we want to over communicate. Yeah. So you need to build systems so you can actually talk to them. Like, do you have a website with some kind of social platform where you can like post updates? Do you have a live service page where every 15 minutes you let them know, you know, which bugs are being addressed and, you know, the patch failures that happened and who's working on them and context around what happened. How much context do you give? Do you give a lot or do you give a little? Like what interestingly enough starts with like almost like a cultural conversation about like what kind of relationship do we want to have with players is going to ultimately inform the systems you build. To me, this goes beyond again, what features you're implementing in your game and how your live service functions. You've got to really think about like, how do you want players to experience that? Who are your players? What kinds of feelings are they likely to have in certain scenarios? Yeah. This could be another simpler version of this too. That's this nothing to do with development. Potentially could be like, what's the response rate of your player support or your customer service team? Yep. You know, like when things break, do players have a place they can go to say, hey, my thing's broken and have somebody respond to them within a reasonable amount of time? This sounds so simple, but I can't tell you how many game companies like I've tried to reach out to when something like this has happened and like I just never get a response back or maybe do five days later after the thing's already fixed. And it's just like, it just feels so bad. But the point we're trying to make there is like when you're deliberate about what kind of experience you want the players to have and how you want them to sort of fluidly interact with the live service yeah. and how you want your team to interact with them, it'll help you get ahead of some of these problems. That's the point we're trying to make. It should not be an afterthought. Yes. It's got to be something you think about proactively. And by the way, we're also not saying 
some game studios through Discord servers during development and after, through a lot of conversation on forums and whatnot, almost treat the players as like a partner. Hey, you're you're with me as we're doing this. You're playing this game. We really appreciate you. I mean, all studios, I think, appreciate their players. But we really want to interact with you. We really want your ideas for how we can make this better. Not because everything you tell us we're going to do, but because we're going to take that into account as we make decisions. We're going to see what excites you, and we're going to respond to that. That is a way to operate. And I, I think that was really good for some games. You may have a game where that doesn't make as much sense. You may have more of a box product, not as live service game. Your SLA, like your response time to a player who has an issue in your game may be a week instead of a day, or it may be two hours instead of 24. I'm not saying that you have to pick the answer that the most live service intensive games pick. I am saying think about it because your players are going to get used to some sort of expectation. And then if you mess up that expectation, they're going to notice So if you're like, we patch every two weeks and we take player feedback very seriously, and then suddenly three months go by and you don't patch and you ignore players for six months, they're going to be ticked. So you don't have to all pick the same stuff, but just be aware of the decisions you're making here. Be conscious about that because it's so easy to feel as a player alienated from the developer. Like they don't understand. They're like in a different universe. They don't get me what's going on or to feel patronized. Like, oh, cool, I'm just the stupid player who doesn't understand game dev and I don't get it. And regardless of whether the average player understands game dev or not, they do know what games are like. They do like playing them. And if they have a bad experience, they want someone who cares about that and you have to confront that. I love that anecdote you just put forward there because that also, you know, is a reminder for us as leaders that like, even when we intend or we have a deliberate strategy for what we want the player experience to be, there needs to be some kind of like dipstick we have to like keep an eye on that and then be responsive to that. Again, if, if that's sort of baked into your strategy. So, you know, that's a key thing there is like, you know, think about the relationship you want to have with players and think about the experience you want them to have and make sure to incorporate that into your development, especially I would say once you hit production. Uh, pre-production and production. So the next thing we want to talk about is setting clear expectations with your players and communicating with them. You know, this is, there's some of this that overlaps with what we just talked about, but there's, there's this idea of once you decide the natural flow of your live service game, there's a certain amount of like expectation setting you need to do with your audience to make sure that they understand how it all works. A great example is the League of Legends two-week patch cadence. Like, I mean, this was just in the consciousness of every player of that game now. They just understand that that's how it works. But, you know, there was an expectation set there. And I think you had a Tarkov example here too, Ben. Well, so Battlestate Games is one that patches with less of a cadence and has a much like there's a there's a wipe that occurs it's an extraction shooter everybody's account gets basically reset to zero at some frequency and i think that frequency is varied between like five or six months out to like 15 or more. i can't i don't know the exact numbers here these might be wrong sorry for the tarkov experts that know exactly those dates or, or time frames they have been clear that they won't be explicit about when the next wipe is happening And so it's an interesting place where you can set the expectation or you can set the expectation that actually I'm not going to tell you. In both cases, it's fine. As long as now you're 
living up to that player expectation. And I think that idea of like League of Legends, you know, every two weeks, every two weeks, every two weeks, there's going to be a patch. And if there's ever not, something's wrong, not even in the memory of most people. Yeah, I think some companies avoid that, like when they feel like they might be signing up for something. Yep. I think that that's not the right way to handle that, to be honest. I think it's actually better to say, hey, our intention is to ship every two weeks and then explain why you didn't make it this one time than it is to just say nothing. I actually think saying nothing is really not a great approach. And and that's kind of what we're advocating here is to be clear and communicate that. Right. Yeah. Be as broad because that that helps your players. And it does mean like if you set a hard rule that you patch, let's say, every three weeks or something, right, in your game. And then you realize that's too much, but you've been doing it for a while and players are used to it. One of the things, to your point, that I think companies fear is that, well, we've now established a pattern and we can't change it. That's also untrue. But the key thing is you have to actually go and be proactive in messaging and communicating that change. Way, way, way back in the day, in like 2010, 2011, into 2012, there was an expectation for league players that every patch contained a new champion. That became unsustainable from a variety of angles, including player facing just design problems that were happening. But around the time when you make the shift from a champion going out every two weeks to a champion going out every few patches or every couple months or whatever it is, you have to communicate that proactively to the players. And give them the reasons why. And again, I'm not saying you have to like go into massive detail and provide them confidential information about your company or anything. No, no, no. Just talk to them. Let them know why. If you've set an expectation with the players and you need to change it, then be clear about changing it. Some are going to be ticked. They're players. You're the developer. There's always going to be things that you don't understand about each other's experience that's going to be difficult to relate to. That's okay. Be open. Be clear. And it's going to go a long way towards continuing and building trust if that's something you value as a developer. And I think you should. I do believe that. Running a live service is a serious burden. And I think a highly worthwhile one. But don't, don't undervalue the difficulty of putting these systems in place, building out all these bits of infrastructure, hiring these people, spending these resources there's a, a meta thing that is like, hey, when should you think about this and invest in it? And we think you should be thinking about it throughout the project and probably spinning it up if you think you're more of a live service game through pre-production into production. But I also recognize like this is costly. And if I was running a startup and I had barely enough resources to do development, I recognize why you don't invest in live service. And what I would say then is to try to instill the live service mentality, even if you're not explicitly trying to figure out exactly how you're going to provision servers or hiring people to do that or building, like think about making things healthy from the start so that if your game does succeed, a live service is something that won't be as difficult to spin up. And actually, one of the pieces of advice I would give to smaller companies who want to kick off a live service but are like overwhelmed by the systems and operations we're kind of talking about is, you know, get people culturally on the same page about like what it means to like be good stewards of the live service and then like outsource every single aspect of that that you possibly can. So like if you can get third party tools, if you can get 
AWS or some kind of like server hosting tool set to work with it. Like just basically like take as much of that, even if you have to pay more, yeah. even if it seems like it's more costly in the beginning, it's going to be a hell of a lot cheaper in the short to medium term than setting up your own internal operations for this stuff. Let the product market fit work itself out first and let the players come to you first. And then once those systems start being coming insufficient yeah. and you have more resources to address those problems, then I would say yeah. address those problems. You know, actually understanding that reactivity is part of the soup of dealing with a live service. Yeah. I think you just you just need to be deliberate about that reactivity. And I, and I mean in the bigger context. Yes. So like sometimes you're going to have to patch things together. Sometimes you're going to have to come up with a Frankenstein solution. Sometimes you're going to have to come up with a solution that's going to work and keep the the hatch is batten down for the next month, but is a terrible solution within the context of the next year. And just as long as you have the next year somewhat in your head and clear about like what your intention is and like where you really want to go and how you really want things to be, it's okay. Yeah. Like just as long as it's deliberate, there's nothing wrong with being reactive. And I think that that's, that's the key thing. Like Ben and I are, have spent a lot of time during this podcast really recommending a more proactive approach. But we do not want that to be translated as like you have to sit down and drop these master plans and have everything go according to plan because that's literally not possible. Yeah. And not least of all, because your players coming in to play your game or not coming in to play your game and the product market fit of your product that you're developing are going to be the chief determining factors in how you build your live service organization when it comes down to brass tacks. Yeah. Thanks everybody for joining us today. We hope you got something out of our live service conversation. I think there's going to be more to follow as we talked about earlier, and we're excited to share more of it with you. It's a big, big, big thing in games. And as we talked about earlier, the trend is moving more and more towards live service every day. I can imagine a world maybe in the future where there it's uh, the idea of like live service and game are indistinguishable from each other. Yeah. So I want to quickly review the six major points that we covered in this podcast. Number one, understand where you are on the live service spectrum so you know where and when to invest. Really get together with your leadership team. Do that kind of fun exercise we talked about. Get a bunch of games on sticky notes and plot them out on a spectrum. See what comes up. Where is your game on that spectrum? Some really interesting things could come out of that conversation. And also keep in mind that that's just your thesis today. That might change in six months. It might change in a year, but it's okay as long as you keep calibrating and having the conversation. Number two, if you haven't thought about what it means to have a live service, you should now, even if you're very early in development. And again, think about it. You don't have to do anything about it right now, but at least start thinking about it and understanding what you'd like it to be. If it's not important right now, that's okay too. Know that early as well. Number three, build live service stewardship into the culture of your teams. Be cautious about separating this from development in terms of responsibility, as we talked about earlier. As an example, if it's not fully ready for the live service, it's not actually done. That and many other principles like it might be things you need to lace into your culture to make sure your organization's ready when it comes time. Number four, deliberately train new employees to think about the live service and how it relates to what they are doing. A lot of folks have not worked in this environment. As more and more folks move over from traditional AAA boxed to live service products, 
this, some of this training is going to be required. So just make sure to keep that in mind and take a second to sit down with people and help them understand what they need to do in this new world if that's necessary. Number five, determine the relationship you want to have with your players. Are they your partners in development? Are they just recipients of what you create? Whatever it is, your teams need to understand this to avoid alienating or patronizing your player base. Number six, it's important to set clear expectations with your players and then communicate with them openly when managing a live service. Do they know when patches are coming? How live maintenance works? Don't forget to cater this to an international audience also if you have one. We had a lot of difficulties at Riot over the years just from natural bias and just the scale of all the regions we had to manage and understanding that our players sometimes had different needs and expectations depending on where they were in the world. So just take some time to really think this through. And again, when we talk about number five and six, it's super important to remember that these player focused things might seem like they're rather compartmentalized, but they're likely going to reflect in the way that you develop in the processes you have internally. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this content, every two weeks we deliver one or more actionable steps that will increase your chances of delivering a great game straight to your inbox. Check out our newsletter at buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. That's buildingbettergames.gg newsletter.